In this section, we begin the shelter section um, of the economy chapter, where Henry uh, sort of addresses the idea, you know, why build a shelter at all? Um, He talks about humans living in um, difficult conditions of snow. And he mentions some observations he has about the Penobscot Indians um, of the area and what he saw when they were actually in in Concord. Um, And then he goes into some Yankee shrewdness um, and, you know, what's what's better to to build a small shelter, uh, something simple that you can own or rent, or do you build a house? What do you do? And how much of life are you willing to exchange for it? As for shelter, I will not deny that this is now a necessary of life. Though there are instances of men having done without it for long periods in colder countries than this. Samuel Lang says that the Laplander in his skin dress and in a skin bag which he puts over his head and shoulders will sleep night after night on the snow in a degree of cold which would extinguish the life of one exposed to it in any woolen clothing. He has seen them asleep thus. Yet he adds, they are not hardier than other people. But probably man did not live long on the earth without discovering the convenience which there is in a house, the domestic comforts, which phrase may have originally signified the satisfactions of the house more than of the family. Though these must be extremely partial and occasional in those climates where the house is associated in our thoughts with winter or the rainy season chiefly, and two-thirds of the year, except for a parasol, is unnecessary. In our climate, in the summer, it was formerly almost solely a covering at night. In the Indian gazettes, a wigwam was the symbol of a day's march, and a row of them cut or painted on the bark of a tree signified that so many times they had camped. Man was not made so large-limbed and robust, but that he must seek to narrow his world, and wall in a space such as fitted him. He was at first bare and out of doors, but though this was pleasant enough in serene and warm weather, by daylight the rainy season and the winter, to say nothing of the torrid sun, would perhaps have nipped his race in the bud if he had not made haste to clothe himself with the shelter of a house. Adam and Eve, according to the fable, wore the bower before other clothes. Man wanted a home, a place of warmth or comfort, first of physical warmth, then the warmth of the affections. We may imagine a time when, in the infancy of the human race, some enterprising mortal crept into a hollow in a rock for shelter. Every child begins the world again, to some extent, and loves to stay outdoors, even in wet and cold. It plays house as well as horse, having an instinct for it. Who does not remember the interest with which, when young, he looked at shelving rocks or any approach to a cave? It was the natural yearning of that portion of our most primitive ancestor which still survived in us. From the cave we had advanced to roofs of palm leaves, of bark and bough, of linen woven and stretched, of grass and straw, of boards and shingles, of stones and tiles. At last we know not what it is to live in the open air, and our lives are domestic in more senses than we think. From the hearth to the field is a great distance. It would be well, perhaps, if we were to spend more of our days and nights without any obstruction between us and the celestial bodies, if the poet did not speak so much from under a roof, 
or the saint dwell there so long. Birds do not sing in caves, nor do doves cherish their innocence in dovecots. However, if one designs to construct a dwelling house, it behooves him to exercise a little Yankee shrewdness, lest after all he find himself in a workhouse, the la- a labyrinth without a clue, a museum, an almshouse, a prison, or a splendid mausoleum instead. Consider first how slight a shelter is absolutely necessary. I have seen Penobscot Indians in this town living in tents of thin cotton cloth while the snow was nearly a foot deep around them. And I thought they would be glad to have it deeper to keep out the wind. Formerly, when how to get my living honestly with freedom left for my proper pursuits was a question which vexed me even more than it does now, for, unfortunately, I am become somewhat callous. I used to see a large box by the railroad, six feet long by three wide, in which the laborers locked up their tools at night, and it suggested to me that every man who is hard-pushed might get such a one for a dollar, and having bored a few auger holes in it, to admit the air at least, get into it when it rained and at night, and hook down the lid, and so have freedom in his love and in his soul be free. This does not appear the worst, nor by any means a despicable alternative. You could sit up as late as you pleased, and whenever you got up, go abroad without any landlord or houselord dogging you for rent. Many a man is harassed to death to pay the rent of a larger and more luxurious box who would not have frozen to death in such a box as this. I am far from jesting. Economy is a subject which admits of being treated with levity, but it cannot so be so, it cannot so, be so disposed of. A comfortable house for a rude and hardy race that lived mostly out of doors was once made here almost entirely of such materials as nature furnished ready to their hands. Goodkin, who was superintendent of the Indians subject to the Massachusetts colony, writing in 1674, says, The best of their houses are covered very neatly, tight and warm, with barks of trees, slipped from their bodies at these seasons when the sap is up, and made into great flakes, which with pressure of weighty timber when they are green. The meaner sort are covered with mats, which they make of a kind of bulrush, and are also indifferently tight and warm, but not so good as the former. Some I have seen, sixty or a hundred feet long and thirty feet abroad, I have often lodged in their wigwams, and found them as warm as the best English houses. He adds that they were commonly carpeted and lined within the well-wrought embroidered mats and were furnished with various utensils. The Indians had advanced so far as to regulate the effect of the wind by a mat suspended over the hole in the roof and moved by a string. Such a lodge was in the first instance constructed in a day or two at most and taken down and put up in a few hours, and every family owned one or its apartment in one. In a savage state, every family owns a shelter as good as the best, and sufficient for its coarser and simpler wants. But I think that I speak within bounds when I say that, though the birds of the air have their nests, and the foxes their hole, and the savages their wigwam, in modern civilized society not more than one-half the families own a shelter. In the large towns and cities, where civilization especially prevails, the number of those who own a shelter is a very small fraction of the whole. The rest pay an annual tax for this outside garment of all, become indispensable summer and winter, which would buy a village of Indian wigwams, but now helps to keep them poor as long as they live. 
I do not mean to insist here on the disadvantage of hiring compared with owning, but it is evident that the savage own his, owns his shelter because it costs so little, while the civilized man hires his, his commonly because he cannot afford to own it, nor can he in the long run any better afford to hire. But, answers one, by merely paying this tax on a poor civilized man secures an abode which is a palace compared with a savage's. An annual rent of from 25 to to $100, these are the country rates, entitles him to the benefit of the improvement of centuries, spacious apartments, clean paint and paper, Rumford fireplace, back plastering, Venetian blinds, copper pump, spring lock, a commodious cellar, and many other things. But how happens it that he who said to enjoy these things is so commonly a poor civilized man, while the savage who has them not is rich as a savage. If it is asserted that civilization is a real advance in the condition of man, and I think that it is, though only the wise improve their advantages, it must be shown that it has produced better dwellings without making them more costly, and the cost of a thing is the amount of of what I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it, immediately or in the long run. An average house in this neighborhood costs perhaps $800, and to lay up this sum will take from 10 to 15 years of the laborer's life, even if he is not encumbered with a family, estimating the pecuniary value of every man's labor at $1 a day, for if some receive more, others receive less, so that he may have sp- he must have spent more than half his life commonly before his wigwam will be earned. If we suppose him to pay rent instead, this is but a doubtful choice of evils. Would the savage have been wise to exchange his wigwam for a palace on these terms? So I've just read um, the shelter, or I've begun the, the shelter section um, in the economy chapter. Um, and... Uh, the the shelter section is probably going to go on for a while because even though this book is called Walden, um, it's actually, you know, essentially about a guy who builds a cabin. So uh, Henry really loves going into the details about the cabin. And uh, it's funny that he starts um, sort of with uh, images of, you know, the Laplander and what it's like to actually um, live inside of really harsh conditions. And... Um, when he talks about, you know, the climate here, he's talking about Boston. Um, as I'm taping this, it's January. There is a snowstorm outside. Um, I think it's funny that he sort of, you know, he he talks about the different situations where, you know, actually it's really, in, in some climates, you can just live outside. You don't have to build a shelter. Um, he talks about different kinds of, of shelters. Um, and he also goes right into... Um, talking about uh, Native Americans. And he, he mentioned that he witnesses um, um, some Penobscot uh, in the town. Um, I have to go back and check his journal. There's not a lot of um, mentions in his journal about him like interacting directly with Native Americans, but I will say that he has um, 13 Indian notebooks, so-called, um, of notes that he had taken throughout his life, I think, on um, Native American culture and habits and um, how they hunted and all sorts of things. So this was definitely a topic of interest. And 
people sometimes speculate that maybe he was um, going to write a book about it. Um, but among the 13 notebooks, there's no um, original writing of his. So there's no, um, or at least, you know, not that, not that I have found. And um, I don't know how much uh, people want to, you know, interpret or dig into the meaning of what one note may mean compared to the other. But I think it's it's a pretty common consensus that there's no um, there's no throw in there. It's all it's all notes and it's all stuff that he was collecting. Um, and of course, he uses the term Indian instead of Native American um, and wigwam. And you know, he's trying to um, again, you know, talking about Native Americans without without participating in finding out about their culture directly from them. He was very much, you know, a person who read a lot and, and observed, but, um, there is a a man named Joe Polis. I think I've mentioned him before when, um, Henry actually goes up to Maine, he hires Joe Polis as his guide. And, um, Joe is actually a native American. I'm not sure what tribe he belongs to. Um, but they do spend some time together. So that's that's the, the main documented um, interaction that he has. So anyway, um, Henry starts, and I wanted to go back and say he mentions a man named um, Samuel Lang. And uh, I looked him up, and there's somebody who was born in 1812. And then there's also the gentleman who was an explorer, who was his father, um, and uh, he's an interesting person um, to uh, investigate. He's Scottish and um, has all these great observations. But again, that's um, that's probably who he's talking about. the uh, The guy, um, the the guy who was born in eighteen twelve. His son, even though he has the same name, he had a a caricature done of him in Spy magazine. So I think he was a uh, he was a, an author and writer. And um, don't get the two confused. Um, I, one of my favorite lines that I hadn't, that hadn't jumped out to me before, every child begins the world again, to some extent, and loves to stay outdoors, even in wet and cold. Every child begins the world again. I think that's just a beautiful idea that kind of captures, um, his observation of children, um, both, both his personal experience and he was around when, um, like Louisa May Alcott and her sisters, um, and Emerson had his children. So he was, he was known to be, you know, one of the, one of the fun guys around the Emerson household that would entertain the kids. Um, and there's, there's a story in his journal about building a, a tunnel of snow, um, I think with Emerson's son and they sort of create like a little not quite an igloo, but, but it's a lovely description. They go inside and I think he, he lights a candle and he talks about how it, how you can see the glow from, from the, uh, the outside of the snow. Um, and this whole, this whole section is sort of like, you know, why, why are, why are we building, why do humans build shelters? What's going on? Right. Why don't we just sort of live in caves? Why don't we live in a box? Um, because birds do not sing in caves and doves don't cherish their innocence in dovecots. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there are, 
there's more than one reason to build a shelter. And um, he's looking to nature to sort of help explain that. Uh, and, and I love when he's talking about the, the Native Americans, um, talking about them living in tents of thin cotton cloth while the snow was nearly a foot deep around them. And I thought that they would be glad to have it deeper to keep out the wind. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've been outside in the snow, but snow is actually a really good, uh, insulating material. Um, and if you're, if you're ever outside and you can figure out a way to create shelter from snow, like an igloo or like a tunnel, it's, uh, it's really amazing. Um, and that when I was reading the part about the large box by the railroad, six feet long by three feet wide, um, honestly, it sounds a little bit like a coffin, um, or, you know, like I've lived in New York, it sounds like, you know, what some people live in, in terms of like a cardboard box where it's just any kind of shelter you can find. Um, but I think Henry was probably thinking about, you know, what if I, what if I just went to the woods if I wanted to stay there, can I get away with just living in a wood box? If I drill air holes for myself, you know, I, I can, I can really visualize him. And I think he sort of talks us through what he was thinking. It's like, you can, you know, you could just, you could have freedom and, you know, your soul can be free. Um, you can sit up and, and frankly, like many a man is harassed to death to pay the rent of a larger and more luxurious box, because essentially that's what all houses are. We're just boxes. Um, and I'm far from jesting. Like he's, he's saying that like, figure out the smallest thing that you can live in, you know, of course, and of course he also doesn't mention about like how much land costs and, um, you know, if you can have squatters rights on a land, a piece of land. Um, the cabin that he ends up building on Walden, um, he actually is allowed to build there because Emerson, um, owns the wood lot, um, directly adjoining Walden Pond. Um, so he's, you know, he just asked his friend if he could squat on his property and Emerson was like, sure. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a, um, there's a college buddy of his, um, Stearns Wheeler, Charles Stearns Wheeler, who uh, they were roommates at in, at Harvard together, and Charles had a house, or like a cabin. I think it was, I think it was bigger than Henry's cabin, um, but it was actually, you know, pretty much situated the same, and it was in uh, like kind of the next pond over. <laughs> so, um, I believe it's called Sandy Pond now, uh, where the De Cordova Museum is, and there's a gentleman who has discovered what he believes are the remains of, um, the Charles Stearns Wheeler house, um, which is very exciting because that's essentially where Henry got the idea that you could have a, a writing house. And I think he, he spent a few weeks there with his friend. Um, and then his friend went to Europe and he asked, he literally asked the family if he could just move into that house. And, uh, I think Walden would be a different book. I don't think it would have been written, frankly, uh, or it might have been called, you know, Sandy Pond. Who knows? Um, but, you know, his family said no. <laughs> They're like, this is this is our house. This is our little cabin. Um, and they let it fall into disrepair. And, you know, as I said, there's, um, there's a guy who found the remains of it. Um, but when he says remains, it's like he did archaeological type digging because there was no structure available. 
Um, and also, spoiler alert, Henry's cabin um, gets dismantled after he does this project. Um, and he gives the roof to a farmer for his pig pen. And um, I think he uh, he gives the rest of the boards away. So, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of reason why um, Henry's house hasn't remained, um, you know, destroyed by Henry, but, you know, not by, um, you know, wasn't bulldozed or anything like that. Um, but Henry had thought of this whole thing as an experiment. So to get back to the book, when he's talking about like what the, um, like what the meaning of having a temporary shelter is, how permanent you want to make the shelter. Do you want it to be a box? Do you want it to be, um, a wigwam? Do you want it to be, I love how he was describing the Native Americans where he's saying like, um, they, they literally use the symbol of, um, of a house, in the Indian gazettes, a wigwam was a symbol of a day's march, and a row of them cut or painted on the bark of a tree signified that so many times they had camped. Um, I think that's a marvelous thing that he's noticed where he's um, literally writing, you know, capturing a symbol system that they have, and he thinks it's fascinating that they're using houses as a way to mark time and distance. Um uh, so he, and then he gets into Good Goodkin, who is a superintendent of the Indians, subject to the Massachusetts colony, writing in 1674. The best of their houses are covered very neatly, tight and warm with the barks of trees. And he's sort of describing um, what they're like, and and you know it, this is officially in the record where you know I think that all, you know we have to remember that Henry was. Um, what like so he's born in 1817 and he's less than 200 years away from um the you know the the mayflower and the whole idea of settlers um concord was settled in or concord was established as a town in 1635 so you know henry's writing more than 200 years after that um but i still think that that idea of, you know, how did, how did the pilgrims create shelter? What was it, you know, what did they, what did they learn from the Native Americans? I think that was still a, a thing in his mind when he's, when he's writing this. Um, and it just occurred to me that he's sort of the midway point, um, you know, like he's, he's, you know, there's the early 1600s, he's writing in the early 1800s, and now we're in the early, um, you know, 2020s. And, uh, I just realized that, that that's <laughs> the perceptions that he has at these moments. Um, you know, the history, what he considers history, what he considers ancient history. Um, you know, if we think the pilgrims are kind of ancient history for America, he's kind of like, he sort of has that same sort of perspective, but it was actually much closer in time to where he was. Um, so... And he keeps he keeps using the word savage. In the savage state, every family owns a shelter as good as the best. And one of the comparisons he keeps bringing up is the idea of, you know, what his society considered savage, you know, quote unquote savage. And uh, he, he keeps bringing up the idea that um, savage, you know, the savages in their wigwams um, are actually doing 
much better than a lot of the people that call themselves civilized. Um, and he gets into this whole section and especially because of, I think, COVID and all of the concerns about um, people literally not being able to pay their rent and the whole idea of, you know, Americans understanding that, you know, buying a house is the American dream, um, you know, except for um, a certain type of person, you know, and in especially in America in the you know, 1950s after the, after World War II, when America was rich and also rich enough to be generous, there were things like, um, loans that were given to, um, all the white men returning from the war and specifically not given to any African-Americans. Um, and that's one of the ways to sort of trace poverty and the history of poverty, at least in the last century. Um, but you know, this is, and this is what Henry's talking about in his day. Um, you know, he's saying like an annual rent of from 25 to a hundred dollars. And these are the country rates. Um, you know, he, you get all of these fancy things, but, um, there are, you know, the, the idea of having to pay rent, um, his his quote is the cost of a thing is the amount of which I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it. Um, so he's he's saying like of course, you know if you can build your own house, that's you exchanging your own life for the house itself. Um, and you know however long it takes for you to build that, then you know that that should be you know you should always be aware that um, time is money in a strange way, like the amount of life that you're giving in exchange for money. Um, if you're paying rent, if you're buying the house, um, that, you know, money is just not this abstract thing that people, you know, want to keep in a bank or whatever. It's this, um, the cost of the thing is the amount of what I will call life, um, which is required to be exchanged for it. Um, so understand and and back back in his day it was a dollar a day. Um and I'm actually so I'm actually looking for the quote. Um so the rest pay an annual tax for his outside garment of all, um, becoming indispensable summer and winter, which would buy a village of Indian wigwams, but now helps to keep them poor as long as they live. Um, you know, and that's that's the you know, when you pay rent you're gonna be poor because you owe everything to the landlord. Um, and then I do not mean to insist here on the disadvantages of hiring compared with owning, like renting versus owning. Um, but it's evident, obviously, that the savage owns his shelter because it costs so little. And the civilized man hires his commonly because he cannot afford to own it. Um, so, you know, it's the it's the whole idea of, um, like, not only is it is it better to... Um, to live within your means and to live modestly. Um, but frankly, like having a box, having a wigwam is totally preferable. And, you know, why should you want or need to build a large house, you know, in, and then he mentions like, if you have a family or not. Um, cause that's, I mean, that's, that gets back to the, the niceties and of societies and, you know, making, making a comfortable domestic life. Um, 
If we suppose him to pay a rent instead, this is but a doubtful choice of evils. Would the savage have been wise to exchange his wigwam for a palace on these terms? Because um, he's saying, if the average house is $800, to lay up this sum will take from 10 to 15 years of the laborer's life, even if he's not encumbered with a family. Um, so this is, this is him also, I think, um, trying to, to figure philosophically as well as economically, um, what a young man, um, wants to do in terms of actually getting a house for himself. Um, Thoreau, oddly enough, would live in about 10 different locations, I think, in Concord alone during his whole life. Um, there's a video online that sort of does an excellent um, demonstration of the houses that are still up. I think it's like six houses are still there. Um, so he was born at Thoreau Farm. Um, he moved, I think, to Medford. He came back into town. He lived inside of a, um, a house that's now actually part of the Colonial Inn. Um, his father ran a business, I think, inside of Town Hall. Um, he... Uh, they built the Texas House, which is um, on the site of where the Concord Library is, um, but that was taken down. Um, he he also lived at the Emerson's house. Um, he lived at the cabin in, at Walden, um, and then he died at, in the Yellow House, which is a house on um, Main Street, um, which is still there and I think recently sold for like $3 million. It has a pool in the back. It's gorgeous. Um, but, um, only the Thoreau farm, um, structure is really open to the public, um, and the replica cabin at Walden. So anyway, this is the beginning of him talking about shelter. I hope you enjoyed the reading and the discussion and I will uh, see you next time.